Welcome to the Reasonable Theology Podcast, where we present sound doctrine in plain language. We're here to help you better understand, articulate, and live out the fullness of the Christian faith. And now, here's your host, Clay Craby. We're going to be starting a new sermon series on the short book of Titus. It's just three chapters, just 46 verses in total. And it's very easy to pass by, so you might want to start heading that direction now. You'll find it right after First and Second Timothy, just before Philemon and Hebrews. Uh, in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 998, and in my Bible, it's right where this ribbon bookmark is. Uh, altogether, you can read through this whole epistle or this letter from the Apostle Paul in about seven minutes or so. And that's just what we're going to do. Rather than try to provide an overview, in my own words, of the book, I want to give some background as to when it was written and, and who it was written to. And then I'm going to read all of Titus so that we're all familiar with the entire letter. Because it truly was a letter. And when they received this, when they read this, they would read the whole thing. They didn't Stop a couple paragraphs in and say, that's enough for today. Uh, but we're going to read through that whole thing, and then we will go back through and spend some time looking closely at the first four verses of chapter one. Before I provide some background on the book of Titus, I ask that you join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it was recorded, that it was preserved. And that even though these had very specific purposes written to specific people, that they are also written for us and for our benefit. So we ask that as we look at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his, his co-laborer Titus so long ago, that we would see here also your instruction for us today. We pray that would be the case for each of us. Amen. So, as you likely already know, the author of the book of Titus is the Apostle Paul. It's in the very first word of this book of the Bible. Paul, a servant of God. And we've gotten to know Paul pretty well in our study over, of Romans over the last many months that we've done together. And here we have a much shorter letter from him. And this time, it's not sent to an entire church, but this was sent to an individual, sent to a man named Titus. Of course, that is the recipient of this letter. We see in verse 4 that Paul names him. He says, to Titus. And he refers to him as his true child in a common faith. Obviously a term of endearment, but who exactly was Titus? Well, Titus was a Gentile believer. That means he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a Greek. Uh, and he was a great help to the Apostle Paul on many occasions. For instance, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8 that Titus was a great comfort to Paul in Macedonia. That Titus has served in the church in Corinth. He may have actually even delivered one of those letters to the Corinthians. He accompanied Paul to the Jerusalem council when there was controversy as to whether or not 
those who came to faith in Jesus Christ needed to become Jews first and then Christians. We see that Titus was there for that also. And Paul wrote this letter after his first Roman imprisonment. You recall when we were studying Romans how Paul spoke of his longing to go and be with those brothers and sisters in Rome and how he intended to do so on his way to Spain. He was going to stop by for a short time that he could be blessed by them and he could bless them in turn. But you'll remember also that he arrived in Rome in chains and he was under house arrest. Well, this letter was written after his release. And before he was rearrested and ultimately martyred, he was put to death. And scholars put the writing of the book of Titus at about the mid-60s A.D. But what is the situation? Why is Paul writing this letter? Of course, we'll learn a great deal about that when we read it here in a moment. But as a brief overview, Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete. And this is a place that was well known for having people of bad character. As Paul quotes one of their own poets in chapter 1, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And to this day, calling someone a Cretan is an insult. It's to refer to them as rude and unlearned and generally unpleasant. And that is the context in which Titus was tasked with putting the churches of Crete in order, establishing elders, and refuting the false teachers who were coming in to cause trouble. And the primary focus in the book of Titus, and that you'll see throughout, is that there is an emphasis on how right belief results in right behavior. How for the Christian, having a true and accurate understanding of the gospel and the teachings of Jesus and all their implications should lead us to do good works that are worthy of our calling. And throughout the epistle, the apostle instructs Titus on how to rightly order the church in Crete so that it is healthy and so that it is effective And so you'll see that I've titled this series, Blueprint of a Healthy Church. That's really what we find in Titus. We have here an instruction manual of how the church is to be led. And how discipleship is to take place. How Christians are to live out their faith in a hostile world. And how to protect the church against false teaching. So you can see the relevance for this in our own day. Again, I'd ask that you would turn with me to the book of Titus and let's read this short letter in its entirety. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace, 
from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter two. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. <laughs> we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or, or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me, Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, seeing that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. If you enjoy the sermons and written works of C.H. Spurgeon, I encourage you to check out the all-new chspurgeon.com. Here you'll find free, unabridged sermon audio delivered with the dynamic of live preaching, articles written by and about the Prince of Preachers, a chronological bibliography of all his books, and much more. This will be a growing library of Spurgeon-related resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. So check it out at chspurgeon.com. Well, that concludes the infallible portion of this morning's sermon. Can I ask that you spend about 10 minutes a couple times a week reading through the book of Titus in its entirety as we go through this series together? I think that will be very profitable for all of us to do that and become intimately familiar with this epistle. So now that we have a general appreciation for this letter, let's focus on the introduction that we find in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. These first four verses look at Paul's identity, his purpose, and his authority. But let us be reminded that we too are called to be ambassadors of Christ. And what we see in the Apostle Paul in these verses should be true of us as well. 
And so as our outline, we will consider the Christian's identity, the Christian's purpose, and the Christian's authority. First, let's look at the Christian's identity. In the first half of verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus. As he always does, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But there is a greater identity at work here, both in this verse and how Paul sees himself. He is a servant of God. No matter what titles or roles or accolades or accomplishments you might accumulate in this life, no identity is more important than your identity as a servant of God. Paul knew that, and so must we. And as you may have come to expect from your study of the New Testament, the word servant here is actually the Greek word for slave. Paul considers himself to be a slave of God, wholly committed to the purposes of God, his master. Remember how in Romans, how often this was spoken of. In Romans 1.1, Paul introduced himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. In 6.22, he showed how believers have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. He has disregarded his own interests and replaced them with the interests of Christ. And that is how the believer ought to consider their relationship with God. Not in a demeaning way, not that we're simply pawns or automatons, but that we would truly embrace the truth that we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, as the old Heidelberg Catechism states. For in being rescued... From our slavery to sin, out of gratitude and worship and duty, we have become faithful servants of our Savior. That is the exchange that has taken place. Christ has purchased us with his own blood. And it is our privilege, it is our duty to present ourselves and our entire lives to him. As living sacrifices. As Paul expressed in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. But sadly such a view of the Christian life. Is often regarded as as radical often seen as being over the top in our day. That's for really religious Christians instead of just regular Christians. But what does it mean to call Christ Lord and Master if we are not prepared to be both servant and slave? Christ himself asked in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? As one 
old missionary said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. That all of our own plans and priorities should come behind those of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be the posture of every believer's heart. May God grant that you and I would loosen our grip on our own desires and gain a firmer grasp on the desires of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in Scripture. Our identity is as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when our service to Christ is our highest priority, then proclaiming his gospel becomes our greatest purpose. So let's look at what our purpose is, the Christian's purpose. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, let me be clear. Paul is specifically addressing his purpose and goal as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That is, as one who saw the risen Lord Jesus and was specifically commissioned by him. You and I are not apostles. But that does not mean that there is not an overlap or that there is no application for us as followers of Jesus in Paul's description of his life's purpose. After all, the Great Commission was not given to the apostles alone. We are all commanded by Christ to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Christ taught in Luke 24 that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. The work that Paul does, he says, is for the sake of God's elect. Which, interestingly, is to acknowledge both that it is God who sovereignly saves sinners and that he chooses to use his followers as the primary means of drawing others to himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is how Paul sees himself delivering God's message by which God saves sinners. And that's how we ought to see ourselves as well. But Paul is not concerned only with the salvation of the lost, and neither are we. We are to desire and to give ourselves in ways that bring about their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That is, knowledge of the truth that corresponds or leads to 
or is in keeping with godliness, which simply means living a life according to the will of God. In a healthy, faithful Christian, right doctrine should result in right living. When our minds are renewed by the truth of God's word, so too will our actions be shaped by our understanding and our beliefs. And this ministry, for the sake of of God's elect, or for the sake of those who God chose before the time began to save, is by which they grow in their knowledge of the truth, which results in godliness. This is done, Paul writes, in hope of eternal life, which God, who who never lies, promised before the ages began. That's too, is an interesting phrase. Before the ages of Gan, the, began, while these promises, of course, were recorded in Scripture, they are based in the expressed will of God in eternity past. After all, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 says. And because of that promise, we have hope of eternal life. And as I always point out when we come across the word hope in scripture, what we have here is is not a strong desire or a wish. It is a sure and certain reality that has not yet come to pass. Paul serves the Lord Jesus at great personal cost knowing that God will use it to secure the salvation and eternal life of those whom he has chosen unto salvation through faith in Christ. And this hope, this hope, this sure and certain hope of eternal life is also the motivation which allows the ambassador of Christ to press on in service to him through hardship. As Paul wrote to another pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has been entrusted to me. And Paul makes us doubly certain of what has been entrusted to him and, and the promise that God has made to us before the ages began by reminding us that God never lies. And of course, we know that. We don't really need a reminder that God is not a liar, but the point is to give us even greater certainty to hold on to these promises. The author of Hebrews 
makes very much the same point in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 19. He writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What a truth for Titus to hold on to as, as he tries to put churches in order on an island that is known for its debauchery and wickedness and barbarism. God's promises can be trusted because God never lies. Such a thing is an impossibility. Meanwhile, the Cretans who Titus would serve with were renowned for their lying and their deception. They worshipped Zeus and especially proclaimed his deception when he used what he wanted to get what he wanted from mortals. But not so with God. Numbers 23, 19, we are told that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Because of the certainty of the hope of eternal life, both for himself and for his hearer, the ambassador for Christ can serve him wholeheartedly and sacrificially, knowing that we work not for rewards in this life, but in the next. And so the Christian can go about his or her purpose, no matter what comes. As believers, we have all been purchased by the blood of Christ and we are to serve him in every sphere of life. And we do so for the sake of those whom God will bring to faith in Christ through our faithful obedience to Christ. But just as an ambassador does not act on their own authority, so we rely on a higher Authority for proclaiming this message. The word of God. Let's look thirdly and finally at the Christian's authority. So where does the message of faith, the knowledge of truth, the hope of eternal life and the promises of God come from? They come just from the mind of the Apostle Paul? Well, well, of course not. Paul has identified himself as merely a servant, a messenger from God. And his authority is the word of God. Let's look at verses one to three, particularly emphasizing the third. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. 
through the word and through the preaching. All these things have come at the proper time. These were manifested. The gospel was manifested in God's word. And with God, of course, all things are done at the proper time. But we see this language especially used in reference to the coming of Christ in the message of the gospel. Romans 5, 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time time. And now having come, the gospel has been manifested in God's word through the preaching with which Paul has been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. The gospel of Jesus Christ is made known to us through God's word. Romans ten seventeen: faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And God's word, the word of Christ, is made known to us through preaching. Just a few verses earlier in that Romans verse, Paul spoke to this as well. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone Preaching. Preaching is the means, the primary means by which God calls people to faith and draws them into greater depths of holiness. But as we spoke of when we studied that in Romans, that doesn't mean that only preachers are to proclaim the gospel. We are all called to preach the gospel in that sense. The word for either preach Or preaching, it speaks of being a herald, of publicly proclaiming a message. And the herald was a vital means of providing information from place to place. And when they delivered a message on behalf of the king, they spoke with the authority of the king himself. So long as they did not alter the king's message, which they could not do. They were to speak the king's words. And we cannot stray from or alter the message of the gospel to make it more palatable for our culture to hear. God uses us, but he uses us to deliver his message. As we already saw from 2 Corinthians, God makes his appeal through us. And that is what Paul has been entrusted and commanded by God to do. But what about you and I? Have you been entrusted with that same message? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We have been entrusted with this same message. Have you and I been proclaimed or commanded by God to proclaim that message? In Luke 9, Jesus told some of his earliest followers, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. We already saw that the Great Commission is for every believer to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Even in the Old Testament, we see Psalm 105 begins, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Far be it from us to be saved from sin and given eternal life and then to keep such a blessing to ourselves. We have been entrusted with the gospel and we have been called to proclaim it to all. Let us be faithful in our purpose as Christians, imitating Paul as he imitated Christ, seeing that we too have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, with the preaching of the gospel so that others might secure the hope of salvation and that believers would grow in their knowledge of the truth and in godliness. So far for the first three verses of this introduction, let us spend a brief moment on verse 4, where we see Titus, the recipient of the letters identified, and then Paul offers him this blessing. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul knew the difficult task that he was going to call Titus to in this epistle. He knew the challenges that lay in store. And for all who would seek to serve Christ in a fallen world, for all who would seek to put what remains into order in Christ's church, there will be great challenges. And so Paul seeks the blessings of God for Titus at the outset of this epistle. Grace. The undeserved favor of God. Not only in salvation, but in every blessing we receive in this life. For every good and perfect gift comes from above. Peace. The tranquility that belongs to the soul that is right before God through faith in Christ. This comes to us from God the Father. We do not have a detached and distant deity who is unconcerned with the lives or the well-being of His creation. No, we have a good and loving Father who knows and desires and is able to provide the best for us, even if it's difficult for us in the moment. This comes to us also from Christ Jesus, our Savior. 
in all things. We operate as sinners who have been saved by the shed blood of Christ. We have a Savior who counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but instead he took on flesh. He lived a a sinless life and he died a terrible death for you and for me. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ, my God, should die for me? We walk through this life not on our own, but with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who promised to be with us to the end of the age. And so as we close, I echo the Apostle Paul's blessing and reminder to each of you, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thanks for listening to the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Be sure to visit reasonabletheology.org for more helpful resources on understanding, articulating, and living out the Christian faith. In addition to the show notes for this episode, you'll find articles, videos, book reviews, and much more. That's reasonabletheology.org. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode, and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting depicting a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I've found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.